This week's parsha is Parsha's Bray. We know one of the most basic matrias that I think everybody knows is the name of the parsha is the gematria Bez plus Aleph, which equals three. And the Balaturim points out that this number three is a remez loy gimel makais yavi oid alav. Royal parai, and that's a remez that I'm going to inflict upon Mitzrayim, upon parai, three additional makas. And that's what this parsha contains. The parsha contains the makas of Arba, Chayshech, and makas Bechayres. And it seems from the beginning of the parsha that there's something very unique about this last tranche of makas. We already had a full seven makas in the previous parsha, and now we have the last three, the maka bipatish, the final blow of the hammer that will free Klal Yisrael from the time. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Meishu that there is something very significant about to occur with these three makas. These following Isis, these makas that I'm about to inflict upon the Egyptians is going to be very, very significant. I've hardened Paris' heart so that I can bring upon him these three makas. And so that you, Claudius Yisrael, will be able to tell in the ears of your children and your grandchildren, how I made fun of Mitzrayim. Rashi says, I, I did an ironic twist against Mitzrayim. I did something that was ironic to the Egyptians in this week's parasha, the and through this, through what's about to unfold in this week's parasha in Bay with the three final makas, you will know that I am Hashem. You will tell your children and your grandchildren and the final outcome will be that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will be mefarsim, that He is God. And so it bothered me a little bit, what is the significance of these three makas? What is so special about Arba, about Cheshach, about Makas Becheres, that this is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu was leading up to? And this is going to be the final blow to the Egyptians is going to be the message that we're going to send to our children so that they know and that they adhere to the laws of the Rabbeinu Shalom. What's the significance of Parshas Bay? Why is Parshas Bay Kaveh Hashem Latzmei? Why does it have its own name? Why does it not just merely flow from Parshas Vayera, put it all in one parsha. Why do we have a Parshas Bay in which we have three makas? Is there a special significance of these three makas that needs to have its own column, its own, its own section of the Torah so that it sends a very conclusive and clear message to the Egyptians and to Klal Yisrael that I am Hashem.
If you go all the way back to the beginning of Parsha Shemais, we find the cruelty of Pare. Pare wasn't just a bad person, he was cruel. And we find this when he made Bnei Yisrael build the store cities of Pisim and Ramses. Pisim and Ramses were the pyramids of Egypt. A lot of times we see pictures of the famous pyramids that still exist today in Egypt and people, I believe, wrongly feel that, oh, those must be Pisim and Ramses. That's probably the, the Jews built those pyramids. Every On the cover of most Haggadahs today, you'll find that same picture of those two pyramids. But that's for illustrative purposes only. That's not the pyramids that Klai Yisrael built. And maybe that they built it, but that's not Pisim and Ramses, at least. Because the Gemara in Saita tells us that when the Jews built Pisim, and when the Jews built Ramses, a very strange thing happened. It was built on a sinkhole, and whatever they built sunk immediately into the ground. I don't know, immediately, but it, maybe it took time, but eventually it just sunk. The Gemara says that the Lashen of Pisaim is from the, the words Pi Tahaim Balai. Pisaim, Pi Tahaim Balai. There was the abyss, the like quicksand swallowed up that pyramid. Ramses also comes from a Lashen of that everything that they built, every little step of the way that they built, was Rishain, Rishain Misraises. It was swallowed up, it, it vanished. And the question is, why did Parai give them such poor ground? Why did Parai say, build it on, on this very weak soil? If Parai really wanted these cities, and apparently he did, he invested millions of dollars, billions of dollars to build these cities, why in the world wouldn't he find a place that has a stronger foundation? Why would he give them a piece of real estate that's a swamp that just basically keeps on having everything sink in? Rapam in his Sefer Atar Lamelech explains that Paray did this on purpose. It wasn't just Stam that he had bad engineers that didn't realize that that ground was not able to hold up the massive weight of the pyramids. Paray calculated that that ground would not be able to sustain the pyramids. And he knew that. And he did it on purpose. Why would Paray do this? Because Rapam explains that there is nothing more hard on the human psyche. There is nothing more demoralizing than when a person works very, very hard on a project and that project is destroyed. When a person works on something a long time and then another person takes that away from him, and he realizes that all of his amelos, everything that he invested, 
all of his time, all of his energies, all of his creativity, all of his resources, everything that he put into it, the lave nefesh, is now gone, and I see it in front of my eyes, completely destroyed. That's a very, very dehumanizing experience. A person wants to be creative in life. A person wants to see the Paris of his hands. I want to see that I'm building something, I'm doing something, and that there's a key to what I'm doing. And when another person goes and takes that away, that is a death blow to the person. There's nothing worse for a person than to see that the fruits of his labor is destroyed. Rukam brings a story. I don't know if it's true or not, but this is a story that he brings. I mean, I, don't, I, I mean, it's true that Rukam brings it, and it's true that there's a lesson. I just don't know if it's a fictional story or if it's uh, or if it actually occurred. But he said that there was a person, a prisoner, who was imprisoned for thirty to forty years. He had a very long sentence that he had to do time in jail, and. They kept him busy day and night with grinding something. Like he had to keep on. They gave him like a, a, a handle with a with a, a crank, and all day he was expected and he was beaten unless he actually physically cranked this very heavy machine handle. And he asked, "What am, what am I doing this for?" It was sort of like an apparatus, and it was uh, it seemed to be attached to the wall. And he says, okay, what am I doing this for? Is it just, I'm, you know, this is the labor that you're, that you're imposing on me? They say, no, no, no. You're on the other side of the wall. Whenever you turn this handle, you're moving a millstone. And the millstone is making grain. And it's feeding people. He says, oh, Baruch Hashem, I'm doing something productive. So for 30 to 40 years, he would be turning this handle day and night but he would at least feel that he was doing something. He was accomplishing something for the zebra at large. And he would picture in his mind's eye how maybe the grain that he was grinding is going to be used for a birthday cake and it's going to make a child happy when it's brought into the room. Maybe it's going to be made into pizza and it's going to feed a lot of people in Lander College every single day. Maybe it's going to be used to make chalas for Shabbos and the person always had this in mind and he would sometimes even wake up early in the morning excitedly to turn that handle because he felt that he was accomplishing something for society and that's what a human being wants after he was released from prison 40 years later he says to the warden as he's being let out would you mind if I see that Millstone that I was uh, that I was uh, grinding every single day. I just want to see it. I haven't seen. I never was allowed to see it. And the warden was probably like the third warden since the original, uh, uh, since he was incarcerated originally. And he says, "Millstone? What are you talking about, a millstone?" Because you know, on the other side of the wall of my jail, there was a, a millstone. I was making birthday cakes and pizzas and, and cupcakes and chalas. So are you kidding me? No millstone here. We're just like keeping you busy all day. 
That was your that was your assignment. That was what you know. Instead of making license plates, we made you do that. There's no millstone. And Rav Ham says that the the shock to the system that this person endured from that knowledge that all that he was working for was lahev of arik. It was for nothing. I was doing nothing for 40 years. I accomplished nothing with my life. There was no productivity. He says it was so demeaning and such a shock to the system that he never was able to recover. Because a human being at his most basic level wants to be productive, wants to be creative, wants that what he does in life has a kiyom. I remember when I was studying um, management, business management. So there was a, one of the things, I think one of the basic tenets of business management is studying the, uh, the, the studies of a man called Maslow. Anyone took a major in business in any form, or maybe accounting, Maslow was a Yid. I don't think he was a Shemesh Abbas, but he was a Yid. And he, and he was like one of the fathers of modern business management. And he made what was called Maslow's Pyramid. And what he was mechadish was maybe something that we take for granted today, but it was a very big chiddish at the time when he said it. See, a lot of bosses, a lot of managers, a lot of owners of companies always felt that what their employees want, and really the only thing that they want, or the primary thing that they want, is money. You just want to raise. That's all you want. All you want is money, money, money. More benefits, more, you raise the minimum wage. You just want to take more of my money. And that's why there is always tension between an owner and a worker. Because the owner wants to make money and these, these greedy workers are trying to take away his money. So there was that tension. Maslow came up with, after doing extensive studies, he came up with a, a very bomb chiddish. That, that's not what a worker wants. Of course a worker wants to get paid, he wants a fair wage. He wants certain benefits. But the main thing that a worker wants is to feel a certain sense of accomplishment. He wants to feel like he's contributing to the organization. He wants to feel that what he's doing has value. It's appreciated, that somebody's paying attention to him. That's the main thing that gets a person up in the morning to go to work, is not the, the money, the money is just, a, you need money to live, and it's important to have money, and it's important to have a well-paying job so you can feed your family and support you. But what really psychologically does a worker want? He wants a sense of accomplishment. He wants to know that what he's doing has meaning, has relevance. He's achieving something in life. And when Maslow came up and was mechadish this, it changed for the people that were open-minded for the bosses that really cared and they wanted that their workers should be more satisfied on the job he made that suggestion boxes people should have the ability to suggest things to their to their bosses and that there should be meetings and they should feel good about themselves and they should have a little covered and dignity and respect and when you give that to an employee productivity goes up because people want to feel that what they're doing 
I don't mind working hard. I want to work hard, but I want to know that what I'm doing is accomplishing something and that you appreciate what I'm doing. How I understood Maslow. Millennia before Maslow came up with this, Paray knew what Maslow was going to say. And Paray says, in order to really get the Jews on their knees, what I want to do is I'm going to undo that. I know that they want to build because they want to be productive, even if it's for the enemy. Even if the Jews are building pyramids for Paray. But as long as they're able to feel like, okay, but I'm, I'm building something. I'm doing something. I see Paris. I see this is my structure. I built this. They would feel great about themselves. They would feel like that they have some reason to live. So Paris instructed the taskmasters to let the Jews build on quicksand. Let them build and build and build and then let them watch how their structures that they worked so hard on sink in front of their very eyes that they are so demoralized that they have no reason to smile. They have no reason to be happy. They have no chiyas in life. I took away everything from them. That was the cruelty of Paray. Paray wasn't just a, a king that wasn't nice to his servants. Power was a cruel, wicked king that wanted to undermine everything that we did. He didn't want to give us any nachas, any satisfaction. He wanted us to toil in vain and then see all of the fruits of our labor sink literally into the ground before our very eyes so that we feel that all that we gave him was worthless. And we would feel just useless and, and demeaned and abused that's who Paray was that was the very first step of Paray's enslaving of Kal Yisrael and now Paray and our parasha is getting comeuppance the nekama against Paray is going to unfold in our parasha with these three makas by Arba Chesha Makas Bechayres I was thinking, what do these three makes have in common? These three makes showed Para exactly what he did to Kal Yisrael, how it boomeranged against him. Arbe, all of the toil that the Mitzrim did to produce crops of Tvua takes a lot of work to make to produce wheat. You have to first till the soil, you have to water the soil, you have to plant seeds. You have to water those seeds. You have to keep on weeding, and you have to then you have to harvest. I mean, there's so much that goes in to producing wheat in a field every year. And all of a sudden, Arbe comes, and all of the Arbe, all of these locusts that are swarming across the land, they're eating every single grain of wheat that the Mitzrim planted. Whatever was left over from the Barad, the Arbe came and consumed it. And power in Mitzrayim see what it's like. That when a person puts so much effort into something, and then all of that's taken away in front of their very eyes, and how that feels. Barod. Chayshech. What happened during Chayshech? Chayshech was the Makkah where the Jewish people were able to go in to the homes of the Mitzrayim, into the 
living room break fronts, see all of the silver, all of the gold, all the stocks, all of the bonds, all that people possessed, all that the Mitzram worked so hard, saving up their entire lives, earning and gifts and, and, and profits and money, cash, everything that they had, all their savings was in their homes. And the Jews went in there and they were basically knowing where everything was so that they'd be able to take it. All of their amelos was going away from them before their very eyes. A lifetime of work, of achievement, vanishing before their very eyes. And finally, and this is the real death blow, is Makas Bechayres. The Bechayr a child that a, a person has, how much does a person put into that Bukhar? A Bukhar was the, the, the main child of the family. You have him as a first, the mother has nine months of labor, nine months of pregnancy that she has to schlep around this baby until the baby is born. And then the baby is born and you have to feed the baby and you have to pamper the baby you have to buy clothing for the baby, then you have to send the baby to, to preschool and to day school and, to, and, to, and then high school and college and millions of dollars of education in that baby. And you have to feed him and you have to buy him clothing and you have to get him uh, to summer camp and food and candy and mash. How much do we put into our children driving them places and carpool? And then all of a sudden, Makas Bechayres, the firstborn, that beloved child, all the beloved children of Egypt, taken away in one night. Ves Amoleno Elo we say in the Haggadah. You know what the greatest Amelos of a person is? The Abonim, the children that a person has. And when a child is killed, Rachman Litzlan, that is like everything that I put in everything that I gave that child, everything that I invested, all of my hopes, all of my aspirations, all of my dreams, all of my resources, everything is gone in a split second. At Chatzay Salayla. This is the parasha that shows power definitively how cruelty gets paid back. This is the parasha of the ironic twist of fate that Parim meets with and Mitzrayim has to deal with. The greatest cruelty, that we shouldn't be miyageya, we shouldn't work for nothing, Parim tastes how that is, how it feels to be like the Jews building Pisim and Ramses only to see that fall. Parai feels that himself. He puts everything that he puts in. All that the Egyptians did in their lives vanished. All of that Amelus, that Yagia, the love, the efforts, the toil, the successes, the triumphs, all taken away in one parasha. This is the joke. It's not a joke. It's an ironic, cruel twist that was coming to power and to Mitzrayim for what they did to us. And this is what the parasha at the beginning is saying, 
Ulaman to Sapper Bosne Bincha, this partial, Seder night, this concept of what we're talking about today has a very, very significant impact on the mitzvah of Sipri Yitzhak Mitzrayim. When you're sitting around that beautiful Pesach Seder with your family and your children, you're going to tell them over what Pare did to us, Rapam's Vart about Pisam and Ramses and how Para with his cruel mind his devious disgusting way how he told us to build only to see all of our Yagiya sink without giving us any satisfaction from all of our labor and how HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave that all back Midah Kenegah Midah to Para and Mitzrayim in this week's parasha Ulamantisapar Bazei Vincho Ben Vincho Asher Salalki Mitzrayim how I did this back to Mitzrayim. You're going to tell your children. And then the Pasuk says, V'yidatem ki'ani Hashem. And through this process of describing what I did to Mitzrayim in return, how I showed them how terrible it feels when all that you put into something is suddenly taken away. Through that, you're going to get a message to your children so that they know that I am Hashem. What does that mean? What's the message that we're supposed to convey to our children to ensure on Seder night that they're going to know that I am Hashem? And I believe that the message that we're really conveying to our children, and really if you look in Rapam's Vard and Parsha Shemais, I think he, he doesn't allude to this, but he, he says in general, a Musar Haskell from what we could learn from Para, and I think this is what we're sort of conveying to our children. This is very important. I want everybody to listen well. When a parent has a child, and he puts so much into that child, and she puts so much into that child. More than we can imagine. Now, if you're not parents, you don't know. And as children, we sort of think about it a little bit, maybe we don't think about it so much. But children very often are very quick to not have a karasatayev to a parent. No, whatever, I, I get into fights with my parents, and if we don't have a, if you don't give me Shana Gimel, Shana Dalit, Shana, hey, I, I, I rebel, I never speak to you again, and everything has to be my way, and it's what have you done for me lately, and a child very often doesn't have the proper appreciation for a parent. A parent does so much for a child. So much. Like I just described, so much, you don't know. If you would see how much money was spent on you up until today, from the time you were born until today, how much did your parents put into you? How much, if you imagine if you would have a room full of all the food that you consumed from your parents' kitchen, you imagine it would probably fill up this base matters easily. Over the course of our lives, how much, how much pizza, how much falafel, how, much, how many cans of soda... How much cholent, how much chicken, how much... Imagine. Your parents' mom, and that didn't come free. 
How much clothing, clothing could fill up this room, the amount of clothing that we had since we were children. Summer camp and ski trips and whatever, everything, everything. Everything is from them. A parent has tremendous yigiyah on raising children. There's sargido bonim. How much effort, how much disappointment goes in to raising children? How many times do parents have to take a lot of disrespect from their children? How many times do parents have to suffer uh, from different issues that arise with their children? Children that don't treat other people properly, chutzpah, so much, it's, it's, there's a lot of anguish sometimes going into children. Many of you looking around the room, many of you probably were perfect children. But a lot of us had our moments that we weren't so perfect to our parents and that we feel we probably could have been a lot better and the parents carry that with them. What does a parent expect in return? What is the, the payback for a parent? What's the payback? What does a parent want from us in return for all that they've done, for the millions of dollars they spent on us, from all, all the time, all the tutoring, all of the ball playing, all of the shopping, all of the cooking, all of the cleaning? All, what do they want from us? What do they expect in return? What is the basic thing that they expect in return? One thing. They want nachas. One Jewish word. Daim don't have that word. They want nachas. Whether they're from, whether they're not from, whether they are modern orthodox, whether they are satmar chasidim, they want one thing. They want nachas. What does it mean, nachas? What does that word mean? Nachas means they just want to enjoy a little of the fruits of their labor. They want to be able to look back and say, Baruch Hashem, that I raised a child of this caliber. Baruch Hashem, that I see my child as a Yari Vishalim. I see him davening nicely in shul. I see that he's learning in his free time. I see that he's clearing the table on Shabbos after a big meal. I see that he's offering to babysit for his younger siblings and he's playing ball with them. That's what a parent wants. At the end of the day, this is why they had you. They had you in order that they should be able to give and give and give. Have you But then, they get in return a little bit of nachas. They get to know that you are a maimen b'nei maimen. And they are following in the derech of Hashem and that they know that they're leaving over a legacy of Kedusha and that they have left over in this world something of significance. That's all that they want in return. They're not asking for repayment. If your child someday becomes a millionaire, they're not going to say, okay, by the way, I have an itemized bill, you owe me $10 million. They're never going to ask for that pack. They just want one thing. They want nachas. When a father is sitting on Seder night and he has the children, boys and the girls, 
family members all sitting around that Seder table with the Chiron, with the Kaisais, and with the wine, with the Matzahs, and the beautiful tablecloth, and the beautiful silver. He tells over this parsha to his sons. He tells over Paray was cruel. Paray made the Jews work, embittered their lives, and then there was no payback. Whatever the Jews expected, to have a little satisfaction from, a little nachas from, it was taken away. And in Parshish Bay, HaKadosh Baruch Hu shows Mitzrayim how that feels. And then the father should continue and say, My children, I also slaved away my whole life so that I should come to this moment that I should look around the table and see children that are Yireyeh Mushleimim. There's one thing that I expect from you. I want you to know that there's a Rebbeinu Shalom in the world. I know. I want you to be Shaimrei Taira Omitzis. That's all I want from you in return. I don't want you to do to me what Pare did to the Jewish people. I don't want you that to make everything that I did, Batul Mavutal, all the Agiya and all of the Haravanya and all the Shvitz and all the Tircha, and then get no Nachas. That would be wrong, morally. Don't do that to me. Make sure that you take the torch that I'm passing over to you and you continue on this journey. The Yedatem Kiani Hashem. I saw a Misa that I think fits perfectly with this. The Shimon Schwab who was the famous Rav of Kaladas Yishurin in Washington Heights. He was one of the G'daylei Taira. Many of you may have seen his farm on, on Chumash and on Tefillah, the Mayim Beis HaShoeva and the, and the um, what's the one on Tefillah called? What? Ian Tefillah, thank you. So Rav Schwab was, a, uh, was one of five sons. And it's an amazing thing how a family in Germany, where he came from, managed to produce five tremendous Tamide Chachamim Mubhakim. His father, I believe, was a Balabayas, a very Chashva Balabayas, and he managed to raise five sons that were all amazing in learning. I know of three of them. There was a Shimon Schwab. Rav Mardachai Schwab, who was the Mashkiach in Mansi in Yeshiva in Mansi, was a tzaddik, a, a, a well-known tzaddik. Recently, I um, I was driving um, up on visiting day to visit one of my children, and my wife and I wanted to go to the kever of the, the Ribnitzer Rebbe. The Ribnitzer Rebbe is, uh, was a known a known Balmaifis, and he's buried in Mansi as a very big tzian there, a very big ayol, and people go there constantly and um, it's a good place if you ever need a Yeshua for whatever reason it's a good place to go and you don't have to go to Eretz Yisrael you don't have to go to, to Europe you can go right up to Muncie and dive in there and I got a little lost because the GPS told me to go into a certain cemetery which I did 
but apparently I made a wrong turn and my car all of a sudden I look out to the left of my on the on, on my side of the car the driver's side and there I was like facing the the cover of a Mordechai Schwab he was a, a very very world known tzaddik just to give you one muscle of how big a tzaddik he was I have a very I, have a, I had a good friend growing up in high school and he um he used to have terribly chapped lips. Not some like, you know, like, like a little chapstick would fix, but like deep chaps in his lips. During the winter, there were like craters come out in his lips. And he was a very chasher of this boy. And he, he lived in Muncie. And Friday night, he davened in the yeshiva of Mordechai Schwab. And he was going on the line in front of, uh, to Sega Chavez, the Rabbeim. And he says good Shabbos to Mordechai Schwab and Mordechai Schwab stops him and he says your lips are very chapped he says yeah what can I do he says it's been like this for years in the winter they get terribly they break he says but you're a Ben Tyra he says you're learning Tyra Hashem how is it possible that a pet Kaddish that learns Tyra Hashem has such terribly chapped lips. Anyway, Chavez, Chavez, he, he keeps going. And the next morning, he woke up, and I remember this, with my own eyes I saw it. The next, uh, the next morning, Shabbos morning, he woke up, and his lips were perfect. Perfect. Like everybody else, perfect lips. This is the, the bracha of a tzaddik. This is another son. See, Avraham Shimon Schwab was the one of the Gedele Adar, or Mordechai Schwab, the Tzadik Adar. There was another brother in London, um, in Gateshead, who was Rav Meisha Schwab, also a very big Balmusser. There's Svarim from him, Mareches, Marchei Lev, and three out of five sons. I don't know the other two sons, but three out of five sons. This power bus in Frankfurt was Zeichetu. They say that they used to call these five sons, the people in town, the Chamishei Chumshei Taira. And this father, Rabbi Yehuda Schwab, on Seder night, he asked his children when they came to the Dalai Bonim, this is just to give a little backdrop, this is in the time of reform in Germany, reform, Ascala, the winds of, of reform were, were very, very, very strong, very powerful, very seductive. And he looks around at his sons and he says, each of you, tell me which of the Dalit Bonham do you want to be? So four out of five said we want to be a Chacham. I think Mordechai Schwab says, I want to be a Tam. I want to be the Tam. I want to be the perfect child. He says, good. He says, I want you to know something. I love each and every one of you greatly. More than you'll ever know, I love. But I love the Rabbeinu Shalom more than you. As much as I love you, as much as my heart is full of love for you, I love the Rabbeinu Shalom more than you. And if any one of you ever becomes a Russia, then I say to you, leave a life. 
You're not for me anymore. I don't accept that. It's not an option for me to have a son that's a Russia. This is what I expect from you. I expect from you that you should have she'ifas in life of chachma, of tmimus. But if you ever flirt with rishas, leave away life. And I think that this is the vart that we're saying this morning. The sight of Sipriyachias Mitzrayim is Rapham's vart. That a person, after all of the Agiyah, there's one thing that he needs. He needs to see Paris. He needs to see dividends from his fruits, from the fruits of his labor. The basic dividend is the Adakim Piani Hashem. What a parent wants from a child, he doesn't want money, and he doesn't want covet, and he doesn't want fame and fortune. He wants one thing the Adakim Piani Hashem. Be makabal on yourself and muna and be tachin and follow Madarah Hashem. That's all I want from you. That's all. That's the least that I expect. That's all that I expect. But you have to give that to me. Because if you don't, that's parry. That after all of the Amelos and all of the Agiyah, if you go away from the Derech, then all that I've done is for naught. And as much as I love you, but I love the Rabbi Nishra more. And this is what I expect. Show them the irony. Show them the cruelty of Parah and how he had his come up into this week's parasha. But the Adatim Tiani Hashem, that message I stayed home to you. That this is what I expect from you. And if I don't get that back, then you're depriving me, just like the Yidin were deprived of Pissim and Ramses. Ripam also extends in Parashat Shemais this concept of the least expectation that a parent wants back from a child, which is nachas. He interestingly expands that to another human being that puts a lot of amelos into another human being. And that's a Rebbe. A Rebbe is somebody if he's a good rabbi, that he really puts his whole life into his Talmidim. We just learned the Gemara in the Daf, in Dova Basra, I think it's Daf Ches, about Rav Shmuel Bar Shilas, who was the quintessential Malamid. The Gemara speaks about him like he's it. What makes him so special, Rav Shmuel Bar Shilas? Shmuel Bar Shilas was once in a in his garden, he had a beautiful orchard, and somebody, and he was once like walking in his orchard, and just, and, and somebody says, aren't you a Rebbe in Yeshiva? Like, don't you, uh, what are you doing in the orchard? He says, are you kidding me? He says, 13 years I didn't come to this orchard because I was busy with my Talmidim. I was giving them every single moment, every single ounce of strength every single Messiah that I had, I was putting everything into them. And I still, as I'm strong, I haven't come to this orchard once, it's the first time in 13 long, hard years of giving to my Talmud, it's the first time I'm even walking to my orchard. The Akati Daitan Alayu. And even, 
even now that I'm in my orchard, I'm still not even thinking about the fruits of my orchard. I'm thinking about my Talmidim. That's what a Rebbe is. A Rebbe invests his very neshama into raising Talmidim. A Rebbe, very often Rabbeim, I would say not very often, always, Rabbeim are very capable and very smart, very intelligent. And they made a decision. They could have followed 95% of the people in their class and gone to law school and had a starting salary that was greater than the salary that they're going to retire on. They could have been doctors, they could have been lawyers, they could have been professors, they could have been accountants and actuaries and, and rocket scientists and brain surgeons. They would have lived a lot nicer, they would have driven a lot better cars, they would have lived in palaces, they would have eaten better, slept on better beds, gone on vacations, and they made a decision that they wanted to give their nefesh and their chiyas to Talmidim so that Talmidim would be able to thrive and to grow and to be a reim and shleim just like parents do for their children. A Rebbe is very similar to a parent. V'shinantam levanecha ila Talmidim. Bonim and Talmidim are interchangeable to a Rebbe. There's stories about I think, uh, I think it was Chaim Shmulevitz, if I'm not mistaken, how he was talking to a, a Talmud, was giving him Eitzis, Adracha, Musa, whatever it was, and in walks his son that he hadn't seen for like a few years or something. Son came from, from a different country, I don't know what the story was, I'm not sure who it was, but I think it may be Chaim Shmulevitz, and he didn't like even flinch, he was talking to this Talmud. And his wife comes in, Yasla's home, well, you know, like, give him a hug, give him a kiss. And he says, I will in a minute, but I, I have Avram here. To him, a child and a, and, a, and a Talmud were the same. And after all of the work, and after all of the investment, and all of the lost profits that he could have made, what does he expect from a Talmud? What does a Rebbe get for all of this? He gets a gold watch after he retires after 50 years? Is that what he's doing it for? A Rebbe expects one thing. To get nachas from his Talmud. That I should feel after all that I invested in you, that you're on the right path, that you're doing the right thing, that you appreciated what I did for you. so that all of the Agiyah and all of the, the toil and all of the, the Tsar and all of the, the difficulties that are incurred in the life of a Rebbe because of that decision should not be Larik it should not be for naught he deserves the Asher Kayach he deserves a thank you he deserves I appreciate what you're doing for me it's not taken for granted I don't look at it lightly I understand what you did and I understand what you do and I thank you for it and I won't let you down that's what a Rebbe deserves that's what a parent deserves the Yedatim Kiyani Hashem 
just to carry on the Messiah, just to make sure that what I did was not for naught. This is the difference between some Talmudim and other Talmudim. Between some children and other children. There are children that get it, and there are children that don't get it. This is not saying, by the way, that if a child is, let's say, for some reason a little bit not so enthralled with Yiddishkeit, and they they go slightly off the derecha, that means the parents throw them out of the house. There has to be love and unconditional love, and, and our dar is a lot different perhaps than the dar in Germany where Schwab grew up in. And what children can be told and what they can't be told is different, and the attitudes that you have to have with, with a child has to be just unconditional love. But from a child's perspective... What is a child, what should a child feel to give back to a parent? Mother's Day, Father's Day. Is a Hallmark card really enough to tell your parents thank you once a year? Every day you should tell your parents thank you. Every day you should tell your parents that I love you. This is what a parent needs. This is the ROI, it's the return on investment. They don't want money, they don't want gifts, they don't want a a vacuum cleaner. They want you to say, thank you, I love you, I appreciate it, I'm going to do, I'm going to make you proud. A Rebbe doesn't need gifts. A Rebbe just needs a Talmud to appreciate what he's done. A human being needs that. A return on investment, a little nachas, a little thank you, a little, I appreciate what you're doing. This is something that I think the parsha is telling us. The Yedatam Kiyami Hashem. The message that a parent is telling a child on Seder night, which has to last the entire year, is that I put so much into you, and I love every minute of it. But don't let me down. Understand what I want. Understand that this is what it's all about. The Lela Seder is the night that I'm infusing you with Amuna in the Ravina Shalom. And I need you to do that in turn to your children and to your grandchildren so that I know that what I've done is not in vain. What I've dedicated my lifetime to has Kiyom, has Paris. This is what we need. This is what we as Talmidim and as children need to do to our Abayim and to our parents. And, and when we do that, you will see how the relationship between you and your parents changes exponentially for the better. A lot of times people at this age have strained relationships with their parents because it's a different generation. The parents want things one way and the child doesn't see it the same way. And they're a little rebellious, a little chutzpahdik, a little, a little insensitive. But I think what we're speaking about today maybe shines a different light on things. Because if you think of your parents as your peers, 
and your partner and they're not giving you what you want and you, they don't understand you and there's friction, then that's that's sort of understandable then how you can have a sikhsuch with your partner. But if you understand a little bit of what your parents put into you, then you look at it from a different vantage point. Okay, maybe they're not giving me everything that I want, but maybe either they're smarter than I am and they know what's best for me, or even if they don't. But Laman Hashem, this is the least that I have to give them. We learned this week in Avad a beautiful letter from Revolve on Wednesday night. And our Revolve says, never fight with your parents. Your parents may not always see eye to eye with you, but you can never be chutzvedik. You have to always do things properly. Because this is what your parents did for you. They gave so much. Are they perfect people? No. And a lot of you might be saying, he doesn't know my parents. Okay, he's talking to everybody else in the room. He doesn't know all the stuff that I had to go... It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, parents give and give and give. And they have very little expectations of return except for this. Just be a datum kenyatem. Be a mensch. Be good. Appreciate. Show me that you're doing the right thing, that you're on the right derech, that what I've done is not larit. It's not for naught. This is the message of Seder night. This is the message of Arshat Bay. Chayshech. Arbe. Makas Bechayres. This is the Hisalati B'Mitzrayim. This is the, the way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu shows Mitzrayim how cruelty doesn't pay. And we have to take from this parsha how we can never allow other people to, take, to, to feel from that we, what we are doing to them has deprived them of all of their amelos and all of their yigi and that we're not giving them the fruits of their labor in return but we're depriving them of that. And Mitzvah Hashem, if we're able to internalize this message, Mashiach will come very soon. Because Mashiach comes at a time that parents and children come together harmoniously, lovingly, embracingly, becoming one. The parents with their never-ending love that they instill in a child And finally, when children appreciate that love and pledge to continue that love forward and return it appropriately, then Mitzah Hashem HaKadosh Baruch will send the Sheikh Tzikainu and the Herb Yomeinu Amin.